Welcome to the Perfect Ingredient Podcast, where the conversation you need for anyone obsessed with restaurant operations, the challenges operators face, and the missing ingredients they need to solve them. I'm your host, Jason Tipp from Pokeworks, and here with me is my faithful co-host, Anton Nicholas from ICR. Hey, Jason. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing today? Good, good. It's a uh, frenetic you know, market out there. And uh, certainly interesting for the restaurant world based on everything we've seen in September in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So let's dive into that in a moment. I want to remind all our listeners to write a review for us on Apple Podcasts if they like what they hear. You can email us at perfectpod at perfectco.com. And we are sponsored by Perfect Company. If you want to learn more about Perfect Company, just head over to their website at perfect.tech. Anton, let's dive into this discussion. I think you're, uh, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's such an interesting time in the world for many reasons. There's weird inflationary pressures and challenges for every industry from supply chain and all this, you know, just sort of turbulence in the system. And yet, you know, if you're looking at the restaurant industry from an investor's perspective, there's IPOs uh, being announced left and right and uh, mergers and acquisitions. I mean, that really interesting one from BurgerFi this week, which is, you know, got capital from becoming a public company through a SPAC merger. You know, all of those mechanics, we've seen some pretty successful tech IPOs this year and acquisitions of tech startups and in large investments in tech startups in, in the restaurant industry. It's just a lot of interesting activity going on right now in the restaurant industry that is different, I, I think, different than what we've seen over the last 10 or 20 years. What, what, do you, what do you think? You see a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a really uh, sort of strange and almost surreal setting where you have, you would think what would create massive headwinds in terms of the Delta variant, the supply chain, the labor challenges, everything that you've already talked about in the industry. And, and in many ways, it has created headwinds. And yet, you know, you do have a spiking demand as people are really just fed up with, with COVID and want to get back out again, which is helping the underlying industry and the businesses. And now the capital markets are clearly, you know, wide open and there's been a ton of activity. I mean, I think when you see something like, you know, a Dutch Brothers price, the way it did, you know, above the range and then just trade like crazy on, uh, on day one, it's an indication that there's an appetite out there for these uh, stocks again and these equities again. And, you know, good, good news for companies like First Watch, which also had a very successful IPO and others that are, you know, out there on record as, uh, as looking at stuff like, uh, you know, Portillo's and, and others that, you know, haven't made it public yet. So I think the headline is, interestingly enough, you know, a sort of choppy macro environment. And yet, uh, from a capital market standpoint, the windows are open. Yeah. And, and, you know, there've been some interesting restaurant tech transactions, obviously Olo, you know, your team supports them. Great, great IPO and, and, you know, good on them. They're a great company and, you know, toast, uh, punch, um, you know, the acquisition of bridge by Cardlytics. I mean, we can just go down the list. Um, the, the one thing I really haven't seen a lot of, Oh, uh, 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 Dragon Tail being acquired by Yum, you know, and Yum has a lot of acquisitions in in tech. Um, I haven't seen a lot of uh, news around investments in robotics companies, which you know, a year and a half, two years ago, and would have been a lot of buzz. 
And with the current labor challenges, as, as restaurants are looking for labor productivity, I, I'm a little surprised we haven't we haven't seen more activity there. Any any thoughts or observations? You know, it might be a low hanging fruit sort of analogy, right? Where where if you look at something like um, Bridge, it's a great example of where, and I, and I think we'll talk about it more with our guests today. You know, that sort of data mining and the um, marketing one to one and things like that is a priority for folks. And so, a company like Bridge, which is um, helping people, you know, helping companies support that effort, becomes an, an easy target. Whereas the implementation of things like robotics and stuff require a whole, you know, system changes in some cases and operation changes in some cases. I think you know, Punch similarly on the on the loyalty marketing side um, also seems like a you know no brainer from a perspective of like what what our immediate needs are. Uh, very insightful observations there, and and and, and I agree. Um, you know, our guest today is Fred Lafranc. Fred has this fantastic, um, broad view of the industry because he works with and advises so many restaurant tech companies and so many restaurant brands and operators. And he has this just great pedigree and background in the industry and and connectivity across the industry that um, I, I think we're going to have a great conversation today and and to be able to to you know pick Fred's brain on a variety of things. Yeah, I think that's right. And he also, you know, he has both experience as an operator in his in his past, um, but also, again, he's now um, a CEO of a bakery company and also for so many years as being an advisor and helping companies and in particular the C-suite on operations and things like that. I think his perspective is incredibly broad, but balanced and will be very insightful for the conversations that we're having about all these things that are affecting the industry. Yeah. Well, let's get right to it. Let's bring Fred on. So with us today is Fred Lafranc, the founder and chaos strategist for Results Through Strategy, and also currently the CEO for Engelman's Bakery. Uh, Welcome, Fred. Good to see you, Jason, and Anton as well. It's great to have you, Fred. Uh, just a quick question for you. What color glasses are you wearing today? I always know that your mood shows through that. I'm wearing red glasses today. Uh, so it should be, a, should be a spirited conversation then. That's right. That's right. I got I got fire on, baby. Just for you. Yeah. Just briefly, we have to sidebar on that since Anton started it. Is I find, Fred, you are probably the uh, best branded individual in the restaurant industry because of your natty styling and the matching classes. And, and when I talk with folks about you, that they usually ask that same question that Anton asked. Well, Anton did that because he's my PR agent. So he does that to get make sure I get a plug in there. So that's having an exceptional PR agent that works for ICR like Anton is part of the magic. There you go. Box checked. Excellent. So uh, they're often, often imitated, but never uh, duplicated, Fred LaFranc. So Fred, before we dive in, you know, you are very well known in the industry and very well networked in the industry, but I'm sure there are a few folks out there who who your name and background might be new to. And I'm wondering if you just give us a brief, you know, for the for the folks listening, just a, a bit of brief uh, background on you, because you have such a, a great and extensive background and, and breadth in the industry. I think that that's that's worthwhile. Okay, I'll go quickly. I started my restaurant career at a company called Lettuce and Tenure Enterprises. Uh, I worked in their fourth restaurant with Rich Melman. I worked with them side by side for a couple of years before I moved to California. And ironically, I was in Chicago a couple of months ago for the 50th anniversary of his opening of RJ Grunts. And that was fantastic to, to see him. Uh, so I've been CEO of half a dozen restaurant companies over the years. I moved from Chicago to California and worked with a small regional company of 18 units that became much larger called El Torito. 
where I became the chief operating officer of 250 restaurants, about $450 million a year in sales, and really cut my teeth through the heyday of, of uh, casual dining, which is now well behind us. It's now the fast, casual, limited service world. In 2007, I started the results of strategy. I felt there was a need in the marketplace to have a consulting company, kind of like Boston Consulting or you know the big boys, and, and I had no pretension of being like that. But I felt that there was a lot of uh, unemployed executives trolling for a job, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to really be an aide to CEOs because having been a CEO, I understand the, the playing field that to look at. And that's how we started. And our, our business has grown over the years. Uh, we've got about 18 partners uh, helping emerging brands and legacy brands that uh, need revitalization and also work with a lot of tech companies, uh, especially restaurant tech. And actually, Anton and I have partnered quite a bit in that space as ICR was building their practice because I had a lot of connections. I just started making those introductions organically, and they now have a thriving, thriving uh, restaurant technology practice in PR. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it is largely, you know, based on the relationships and introductions that you made for us, Fred. So we appreciate that. You know, I find what's interesting um, based on your history is bro- both an operator as an advisor and now again as a, you know, interim CEO, CEO on the operations side. Can you just give us a little bit of sense of how that sort of tech and the restaurant world has evolved through the last, you know, certainly the last 10 years as you've been on the advisory side, but also now as you're back on the operations side? Well, it's, it's changed a lot. I mean, my first computer was when I worked at the pump room in Chicago. It was an Apple computer because I was responsible for inventory. And after a couple of cycles of doing it by hand uh, with a, you know, with an adding machine with tape, I said, there's got to be a better way. And, and I always joke about it. I like to be bright and lazy, uh, smart enough to figure out an easy way to do it so I don't have to do it the hard way. Um, and that was my first introduction to tech. And I've always been a closet techie. I can't program a, a line of code, but I really studied the business application for technology. And that's what's really changed. I think especially as the CEO generation is evolving, we're getting past the boomers. My contemporaries, you know, we weren't raised with technology. I mean, the te- technology for us, you know, a big deal is a fax machine, right? Uh, but it's, it's, it's changed so much. Now that you have you know, sort of the Gen Xers and the millennials coming up in the ranks, they're very comfortable with technology. And because if you study the business application of technology, and now I just I just looked at a MarTech map the other day for marketing technology. Oh my God, there's like 5,000 different companies just for that. Then you start looking at the restaurant operations technology where it used to be three, I mean, let's face it, the old, old technology was POS, right? And that's really been disintermediated tremendously. It's going through its own evolution and disruption going into cloud-based computing. But then you look at the whole uh, semi, the circle around them. The way I break it down to make it easier for people who are not technology advanced to look at it, is I look at sort of the operating technology, that's sort of the back of the house, POS, internet scheduling, inventory management, uh, KDS systems, things like that, they're back there. Uh, then I look at, at the front of the house technology, which could be digital menu boards, tabletop stuff, things along those lines, drive-through, of course, goes in there, uh, even the, sort of the, what's going on with the you know, Bluetooth enablement to recognize people when they're coming in when you sort of do a little corral around them. And then you look at the sort of the revenue generating technology. That's your mobile phone. All the stuff is loyalty and ordering and things like that. Because now we're in an era of one-to-one marketing. Jason, you're a CMO, so you understand that. One-to-one marketing has always been a dream. It is now here. We'll talk about the challenge of that. And then the, the last quadrant for me, which is where I think the money's going to go. So Anton, write that one down, is data. <clears throat> data analytics is where it's all going to go. Because all these apps are generating tons and tons of information, but no one knows what to do with it. Every, you know, everyone complains about third-party uh, delivery companies taking their customer away, their data information, but even if you had it, what are you going to do with it? 
And so it's, so that analytics, where you really do the gold mine, because we're drowning in data star for knowledge, that's where the, the game changer is going to be as we go forward. And that's a little bit of how I see technology evolving in the restaurant yeah. space. Well, it's interesting that you use the word evolving. And I know we want to break down some of the categories that you talked about. But, but one quick question for you, based on the uh, adoption that we're now seeing because of the next generation coming into leadership roles, is it, is it an evolution at this point, or are we in a revolution as it relates to technology in the restaurant industry from your perspective? Well, I think the answer is in your question, right? COVID absolutely forced adoption at a faster rate than ever before. I always joke with our, my tech clients to say, restaurateurs, we're the nicest people in the world, but we're cheap and technophobic, okay? We just don't want to pay for anything because we have these small, slim margins. And I'm not saying that's critical. That's just we have to be. It'd be frugal. And the technophobic piece of it comes down to if you're not raising technology and you don't understand it, here's the challenge. You know, if you if you look at the evolution of, let's say, personnel into human resources uh, and then, you know, the CPO, they sat at the big table. I, I spoke at a hospitality technology conference at Mertig a few years ago, and I asked this one question of about 400 people. How many of you envision yourself being a CEO one day? OK, not one person raised their hand. You ask that same question, which bunch of CFOs and a bunch of CMOs, a lot of people raise their hand. And yet now we're in a world where technology is one of four fundamental departments, human resources, planning, administration, technology, and finance, that has to be able to have the full breadth of the organization and be part of strategic conversations, as opposed to just, oh, my laptop doesn't work, can you fix it? You know, that's kind of the classic line. And so it's this black hole. And I, and I think it's important for CEOs to educate themselves again, on the business application of technology, not the ins and outs of what it does and how it does it, but what it can do for me, what's the outcome. And I think that's what makes the critical difference. So pandemic forced adoption ways that, that uh, would never have been happened as quickly before. Good news, bad news. Good news, they adopted. Bad news, some people pick some bad tech. Uh, and now you got to go back and clean it up. Yeah, I think, Fred, uh, a ton of insightful and thought, thoughtful comments and observations in you know, in, in what you just said. And uh, as you were talking, it occurred to me, I remember, I'm sure we all remember, and it wasn't that long ago, that the person who was responsible for running the tech technology organization in a restaurant company reported into the CFO, most commonly, was a VP of IT who reported into this, the CFO. More recently, you know, the, the leading companies then started to have a, a senior level, C-level position, CTO, CIO, whatever they called it, but that was still relatively rare. And I, you know, I remember a few years ago being in, uh, and like I say, it, I would just say pre-COVID, being in conversations where operators are still and CEOs are still trying to decide whether they wanted to do online ordering, you know, and having to make a pretty substantial business case. And, uh, you know, now companies can't imagine operating without online ordering. And, and to your point, I, I see the same kind of clicking with customer data starting to get there. As you know, I was with a, a customer data platform company for a couple of years and worked closely with them for, for some time before that. And just in the past couple of years, that company has gone from having to educate C-level executives on why you need a central customer data platform to folks now understanding they have the problem and seeking out the solution. Right. Uh, still, you know, mostly the leaders, but it's starting to, to be a broader conversation uh, in the organizations. I'm wondering whether you see similar kind of transitions, maybe, you know, cur currently the early stages of technologies like that, that facilitate operations at the restaurant level, 
whether, I mean, there's a lot of buzzwords around robotics, but there's lots of potential technology solutions that could help crew members be more effective. And particularly in these days where there are, there's lots of opportunities for driving labor productivity and labor efficiency and kind of addressing the challenges of getting sufficient labor at the, at the restaurant level. I'm wondering whether you're starting to see early stages of technologies that are going to make that same transformation. Well, there's a lot. I mean, there's obvious technologies that take physical labor out of it. Robotics or cobots, as they're really better known. You know, there's the replacement of cashiers by kiosks. That re- that's, again, very specific labor related. And think about it. Why would a human being in today's era want to stand in line behind somebody else to take, give a verbal order to somebody that could punching into a machine that you could do on your phone instantly or a kiosk, right? I mean, that, it's always like, really? And that, but this is the world we're living in right now. We've got one foot in the past and one foot in the future. And on average, we're like, okay. So yes, I think there's a lot of technologies. The other thing, let's go back to data. Every single employee in a business, including your business, Jason, and yours, Anton, should have their own personal dashboard. The metrics that allow them to adjust their behavior on the fly. Okay, that's what data does for you. And if you can deliver that in a quick way, it really lets you know that. Now, there's been companies that have been doing this manually without, without electronics and, and automation for a long time. Houston's is a great example. I mean, Houston's the gold standard in casual dining. They do it with a paper-based system. You, you, you get greeted by a Houston server and they ask you if you want a drink order. They write on a piece of paper. They tear it off and stick it behind their back. And someone else walks behind them, grabs it and goes, brings the drinks. And the person can still be talking to you and they get your drinks from the table. That's a great example of eliminating dwell time out of a system. Now, technology can take that exact same process and automate it. Of course, nowadays be handheld, right? Because the handheld says, I'm, I take your order. I punch it in. It goes to the bar. Someone's at the bar. They bring me the drink. It does the exact same thing. And so technology amplifies great practices that exist in companies. Technology does not replace bad food and bad service, but it can enhance it to make it more productive. And I think that's where the opportunity comes in, be it a cobot in the kitchen, be it a digital device in the service hand, or a push technology for the manager to be aware that Susie's about to go on overtime, you might want to send her home. Um, And so if everyone has sort of their dashboard of what's going on, it's fantastic. So you think about, you know, if you stop and think about it, because privacy is dead, uh, Anton can come in with his family for dinner. The restaurant will know it's him. How many times he's been in there, the classic, you know, loyalty, frequency, recency, and spend. Find out that he's allergic to shellfish, you know, but he loves a big Barolo. And is, you know, when they greet him, it's good to see you again. They know the name of his kids, his wife. And, you know, we know your favorite's Barolo. Would you like to have a glass of that? And and then without it being creepy, right? It can't it can't be creepy. It's got to be done in a very very hospitable way, which is what our industry is. But that kind of knowledge and information of, to allow customer intimacy is what's available to us now, and that's really what the key is. It enhances the experience. I mean, anytime anybody offers me a Barolo, is not creepy. Let's just be clear about that. So actually, any um, <laughs> yes, fair enough. So I think that I mean that's obviously interesting, particularly on the customer side of the of the equation. Can we jump shift a little bit, Fred, based on your experience and what you're living today, particularly to go to the back of the house? And in particular, you know, what's happening with supply chain? Everybody's talking about supply chain. It's a huge topic, uh, you know, on all the newspapers. But what's happening within the organizations and how is technology helping you iron out some of the challenges with that? Well, we live in an ecosystem. So it's like a mobile over a crib, right? You can't pull on one end without up the other ones. And supply chain is the direct relationship that was going on with people. It's totally related. You get a you get a port in China shut down because of COVID. 
that has ripple effects throughout. In fact, the classic example was what happened to the Suez Canal. You know, when that ship got stuck there, that has still has effects on global shipping. You think, well, that was just like a ship. If any of us have been stuck in Russia or traffic, welcome to supply chain. Okay, that's exactly what's going on right now. Uh, so the demand's high, the sourcing of it is available to produce with limit with some ha- you know handicaps because of the COVID thing, and then the connection point in between is really crazy. You got sixty ships off the coast of California waiting to unload Christmas presents. By the way, if you haven't ordered your Christmas presents yet, it may be too late in the week. Order them like right now because the odds of you getting them are slim to none. And so supply chain has that constraint. Then of course you have this surprise, surprise. The world was tired of living in a cave for 18 months. If they came out, they wanted to play and eat and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, shit, now we don't have stuff, right? Look at the rental companies. They sold their fleets, okay? Now you can't get a rental car. Well, of course you can't get a rental car. You sold them all. I mean, it, it's almost like, what were you thinking? Um, but I will tell you that I was looking through some sort of old uh, documentations from 2019 conferences where we talk about the labor crisis. We yeah. wish we had a labor crisis of 2019 right now. Cool. So let's go back to the main point of supply chain. Inflation's here, it's real. I know the Fed says it's temporary, but they're not gonna lower prices when the, when the cost of the goods go down. That's, it's kind of permanent at this point. If you're up at over 5% of you know, you know, your cost of inflation to food away from home, no one's gonna lower the price later on. It's forced companies to do some great things that they should have done a long time ago. They reduce their menus. That eliminates some stress on the supply chain. Because now you focus on the things that sell the most, are the most profitable, the easiest to make with less labor. That's a you know less is more in that example. Okay, then the flip side of that is more. You've got to do more with less, you know, and that's and that and so supply chain is a direct correlation to that. We've done a lot of menu analysis with companies have a lot of single use ingredients. You don't want single use ingredients. You want to use a lot of the same stuff, and then God willing, it's available to you. The other thing is that because I am running this bakery right now. Uh, you know, the, the wheat harvest becomes our barometer of life. Well, guess what? Three quarters of it is all we're going to get because of the drought, you know, because whether you believe in climate change or not, it's hot out there. Things are dying. You know, we, we live on an earth, a planet that things grow. That's an issue. And then you got the impact of international markets with the Chinese coming to buy a lot of our food. Uh, all those things, you know, work together in that ecosystem. They're really out of balance right now. It's going to take some time for it to find its balance. Yeah, I, I was in a conversation uh, just the other day with some operators, and it was along those lines. They're challenged with the, trying to keep things on the menu that they sell well, that are coming in, you know, they're getting alternate products, they're getting different pack sizes, they're just, it's, uh, you know, it's just wreaking havoc operationally. Uh, Fred, have you seen any operators tweaking their menus for uh, or, or bringing new products on the menu to to offset what is available versus what is not available, and that would that would be an interesting that would be an interesting tactic. Well, the smart ones are they're using LTOs for that. Okay, mm-hmm. because if you find out there's a lot of X in the product in the market, then buy a lot of it. If you if it fits within your brand and you you adjust right. it, right? Assuming that, then yes, that's what's really smart to do. Because if the stuff you really want you can't get, then there's no choice. And the classic, you know, economics of supply and demand, there's people want more of it and there's a scarcity, the price goes up. Uh, but yes, there's a lot of substitution going out of the marketplace and they really need to. Um, and it's interesting to see that uh, I consider menu air sections as a platform. So if I have sandwiches, salads and pizzas, those are three separate platforms. And what you do within those platforms is critical. There's been a couple of restaurants recently that have introduced new platforms. Okay, why? Because they can't get the basic stuff that they need, so this is a way of still, you know, building business and fulfilling demand. 
So that is happening a lot. So, but menu reduction has been been a big part of this. And now when they add back in strategically, they can be more thoughtful of it because menu creeps been part of the problem in our industry for years, right? It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And no one can take anything out. Someone's always buying your lowest selling item. So you got to expect them to scream when you take it off. But your education of that to your servers to make sure they understand how to explain it and provide alternatives. And I always encourage people to say, if you're going to take something off the menu, keep the ingredients in house for a month or two, make it for them that last time. And they say, next time I won't be here, but I did it just for you. There's a way of doing this without you know pissing someone off. So from, from a technology perspective, Fred, are you seeing any solutions out there that are working particularly well for operators to manage their supply chain, keep track of inventory, forecast, you know, sort of helping them navigate these turbulent times around supply chain and, and inventory management and menu, menu management, huge uh, opportunity, right? Yeah, and I think the answer to that, because there's no one solution, is holistically. So let's take a, a company like Plate IQ that allows you to digitize your menus and puts it to the GL, okay? What, what the Plate IQ is able to do is take information that was never available to you. It was always there as a piece of paper, but because they're capturing everything digitally, you now know what you're buying and how much you're spending for it. And if you use that data, it could be much more predictive in that regard, right? So that's that's one of the things that, that it can allow you to do. Then you got the POS system with your POS information, which all the manufacturers of Dyna have. They want to know who's buying what. Uh, and you can start matching those things up. And now with sort of that CRM, CDP platforms that exist, you can begin to understand what everyone's preference are. My example earlier of Anton and what his order history is and his frequency and stuff like that is now available. But you have to have the mindset to say, that's what I'm going to look for. It's not just about capturing information. It's about understanding what does that mean to me? How do I apply that? And then, in, and by the way, many different ways. Uh, so it's not just about one-to-one marketing. But it's also going back to the operation to understand peak demands, what sells. You know, we, we like to look at uh, equipment demand. If I had four stations, I only have three cooks. What am I going to do now? Do I try and have one guy cover two stations? Do I eliminate a station or do I take that fourth station and come up with a virtual brand that uses that piece of equipment? I can afford to really pay someone a lot of money because my, my operating costs are already sunk. And I can now start selling, you know, I'm a pizza restaurant, but I sell deep fried chicken out of the back door. Who cares? I think restaurants are now in a position to look at their business. Uh, like, you know, I, I'm running a commercial bakery. I got to look at what I can, what revenue can I generate out of my square footage? It doesn't matter what they buy in that regard. Same restaurants the same way. Before it was how many people came in to see me? How many seats did I have? Now it's per square foot of my space. How can I generate more sales per square foot? Regardless of what the product may be, as long as it does not interfere with my core brand, right? You got everything's got to be in sync and balance. But it's really shifted the way we look at the business now. Okay, so we we covered labor quickly. We covered you know supply chain quickly. You know what what else keeps you up at night, Fred? That we're not we're not talking about that we should be thinking about. Well, I'll tell you what I've observed in, in the pandemic. When the pandemic struck, we helped a lot of people for free. We had no choice. Not, we didn't have a choice. We had a choice. We chose to help them, right? And I was on the phone with many a CEO and founder late at night where they're in tears because they had to destroy the very thing they built over 20, 30, 40 years. The companies with the best culture are the ones that have survived and are going to thrive. The ones that were toxic have gone down because the employees didn't believe in them. They didn't rally for them. And so it's not so much what keeps me up at night, but it's more of what my conversations are with my colleagues is to say, focus on your culture. That's your secret weapon. If you want to, if this labor crisis is bad, 
But the companies that have a great environment to work with them, they're not losing the people as rapidly as the other ones. They're not peeling off. They want to stay there. Why wouldn't they want to stay there? They're treated with love and respect and kindness. Um, so they stay. So I always tell people, love the ones you have and keep them. Plug the hole at the bottom. And then that culture will be the magnet to bring people in. Because uh, you can just tell, you know, just, you know, I, I tell uh, managers that they're, if look at, we know that about 70% of people get ghosted right now when they have appointments for interviews, right? I encourage managers to have an employee sitting with them on the interview. Have an employee talk to them. Let the employee tell them what it's like to work here for this company. At the corporate office or at a restaurant level, get that first endorsement right off the bat. Don't, don't be transparent about it. You know, no, no culture is perfect. But if you can say, you know what, they treat me well. They gave me the resources I need. They're always willing to help me. You should come and work, join us. This is a great team. Whole Foods, after 30 days with a new employee, the entire team votes on whether that employee stays or not. You know, because they can fool the manager, but they can't fool their coworkers. So I think culture is, is a weapon that we can begin to use. And a weapon, maybe it's the wrong term, a, uh, not even a technique. It's just make sure you, rec- you really understand that that culture is what is ultimately going to make you survive in this marketplace because we have to have the ability to adapt quickly. I told everyone that we are in a whitewater world. It's not will you hit the rocks, it's when you hit the rocks. And culture has got to be flexible and nimble, like your raft's got to be made of rubber, so bounce off the rocks and keep on going downstream. Yeah, I, I once had a, a boss who told me that people like to work with people they like to work with. And I think that's an important part of the culture is you know people, people like to be at places where they feel like they're, we say it, it seems, you know, overstated, but, um, you know, where they feel like they're part of a family, part of something larger where they, they feel valued. So Fred, I have one, one last question for you before we go on to what we think of our, uh, our four foundational questions that we close out every conversation with. If you were, uh, if somebody is listening to this podcast and, and they're looking for that one that one nugget from Fred, um, you know, what, what's the, what's the last thought, the one thought you'd like to leave operators out there about thinking about technology and how they should be uh, thinking of applying their tech technology there. A lot of people are doing their budgets for next year right now, right? What, what should they have top of mind from a technology investment perspective? Well, I think technology has to be part of your strategy. I, I mentioned it's one of four foundational departments. If you do not have that built into your strategy, because let's face it, the marketing department now has got a bigger tech budget than IT for obvious reasons, right? Because we're going to digital devices. But technology supports so many other activities and, and is the conduit, builds the plumbing for the information to flow through. The information services is the result of that technology infrastructure, as you very well know, Jason. And so, so I'd really be more, be, bring it up to the first thought. Don't make it as the afterthought. That would be in terms of using technology in your business. Awesome. Thanks very much, Fred. So, so as I said, we, we move on now to what we call our perfect ingredient four foundational questions. Uh, I'm going to let Anton go first. We is the same set of four questions we ask every uh, every. Uh, oh, this is like the, act, this like the actor time with. studio, right? This is the actor studio moment. Exactly. Oh, it is. It is yeah. the actor studio moment. Yes. All right. I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. So the, the the first one out of the gate is: What is your secret guilty pleasure food or meal? Carnitas. I'm. So I love carnitas with with nice soft corn tortillas and some great salsas. Nothing better. There was no hesitation there at all. Amazing. There was no hesitation. And honestly, that doesn't even feel like something you should feel guilty about, Fred. (laughs) Well, you know, I shouldn't be eating corn tortillas. I'm supposed to avoid carbs. That's my guilty pleasure. So that's when I finally said, okay, I can eat some carbs. Oh, there you go. I thought it was going to be something like White Castle. But what brand or company? I I like quality food. 
No, oh. against my castle, but it's just not uh, doesn't have the quality. Right. It's, <laughs> it, that's the but that's my college my midnight uh, evenings and college days uh, crave food. Um, what what brand or company other than your own do you admire most? Uh, Chick Fil A. Chick Fil A is amazing. They 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 are, they're an embodiment of a of a company that uses technology brilliantly. Uh, has an incredible culture. Whether you agree with some of their statements or not, I understand they can be very polarizing, but it's amazing what they've done. I mean, I think they grew 30% during the pandemic in volumes. They're over $8 million AUVs by, on six days. That is damn impressive. And it's it's always amazing, regardless of where I go into it, the people are just so polite. And that's not an accident. That's intentional. So I have a lot of respect for them. Consistency and quality of products amazing too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is, uh, you know, perhaps outside of the restaurant space, Fred, or technology space, but what is the most interesting thing you've read, watched, or listened to lately? What are you binging these days? Simon Sinek's speech on the infinite game is fascinating. If you want to get the full, he's got four pillars for that. But if you watch that, that is fantastic because everyone in the restaurant business should understand it because he puts in the context that we are playing an infinite game. We're not playing a finite game. Um, and it's and he starts off as you would expect him to with a just cause, you know, and a just cause is something that's worth getting up and and really you know trying to achieve in some regard. He also creates a context with discussions that you, you shouldn't look at your competition as someone you want to destroy, but you should look at them as worthy rivals that make you better at what you do. And if they weren't there, um, you would not be as good as you are. And regardless of whether they're beating you at a certain point in time in some category, that's good. It's going to make you much better. Uh, the other one he talks about is courageous leadership. Uh, and God knows we need that. And, and, and my hat's off to every restaurateur on this planet because we survived this shit and we're going to come out better on the other side. And I apologize for swearing, but I just, I think it's one of those things we, we went through that. Okay. Uh, and then he also talks about trusting teams where you have a culture where people trust the leadership because they know they got your back and they're there to help you as a person. It's not about profit first, it's the person's first. And lastly, it's a flexible playbook. You know, we got to be able to pivot on the dime. And that's what this this world is about. It's about pivoting on the dime. There's no certainty right now. Not yet. Uh, we hope there returns one day. But the only thing we know for sure is going to keep on changing. So I would recommend that as the thing for everyone to listen to. That's that's an amazing recommendation. I have not listened to it myself. And I can't wait to based on that. Can I'll I? Send, I'll send you a link. Awesome. Yeah. Can, can I can I go back to one thing you just said, though, Fred, which is you started off by talking about just cause. And it did remind me of something that I know is near and dear to your heart. And I wanted to give you an opportunity just to talk about it really quickly. But can you talk about conscious capitalism? Sure. I just came back from emceeing the CEO summit, um, which was an incredible experience in person. We all got COVID tested before we walked into a room and all that's the new protocol nowadays. You know, get ready to get your nose swabbed. Um, but conscious capitalism has a lot of similarities to what Simon Sinek had. In fact, Simon's been at several conferences that I've been at with conscious capitalism. But it's built, that one's built on the four tenets of you know, a stakeholder mentality. Everyone has to win, not just the shareholders, but the employees, the community, the vendors, so forth and so on. Conscious leadership, I just touched on. Conscious culture, which is sort of similar to a you know, helping team. Uh, and then just in a, having a higher purpose. And that's the just cause. is to understand your why, because it's not profit is an outcome. But the reason you get up excited in the morning is because you're serving a cause greater than yourself. And for me, as an example in the bakery, I tell my senior leadership team, we will be measured, our measure of success, I should say, will be by the way we can enhance the quality of lives of our line workers. Well, when I got here a year ago, we're making $11 an hour. They're now making about 15 And when you look at someone that has low hopes, aspirations, because they come from another country or they came from a, a poor environment, 
and you could give them dignity and respect, you see them rise up with pride, that to me is the ultimate measure of success. And that's what Just Cause is, and to give some greater good out there. So our, our motto in the bakery is we rise so you can shine. Um, and that's a bit of a play on words, but that's what it's all about. That's great. Thank you, Fred. Thank you. So, so last question. If you could create a restaurant innovation out of thin air, what would that be? You know, I, I thought about that, um, and I'm not sure it's so much of an innovation as an outcome. One of the things that, you know, years ago, remember Fight for 15? Okay, that was a big thing because everyone was repressed. And, of course, you know, and then there was the other side of it saying, well, we can't afford that. We're going to go out of business, right? Well, the market's not determined 15's here. That's the new floor. Thank you, Amazon, right? And the one thing that I believe that the restaurant business as, a, as an outcome could potentially do is to create an economic model where everyone has a quality of life, where it's sustainable, but they don't have to work two or three jobs. They don't have to make choice between buying medicine and buying food. Uh, they don't have to worry about the neighborhoods they live in because they can't afford to live in one that's safe for their families. And that would, to me, that innovation, if we can create an ecosystem that allows all our employees, we're the largest private employer in the country, not until the pandemic, where that could be a place that people would want to come and work. Because the reason people are leaving this industry is there was no safety net, none, zero. And it would be great. And I'm not being a, you know, kind of a socialist about this. It's not about that. I think that the restaurant business has always been one of kindness and consideration and empathy. And we should do that fully, not just in words, but in deeds. Amen. I, I think, you know, there's a great comment, Fred, not to, not to delve in, into politics. I, I think whether you're a progressive, liberal, conservative, doesn't really, really matter what your political philosophy is. If you have compassion in your heart, um, I think you should pursue your approach to politics and governance uh, with that objective in mind. And there are lots of ways to get there, right? It can be done by private industry. It can be done through government intervention. But folks should, it's an it's a, um, admirable goal for, for everyone to be supporting. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. So um, thank you very much, Fred LaFranc. This has been a great 30, 35 minutes, I think we've been uh, chatting. I always take something valuable away from our conversations. Uh, again, Fred LaFranc, our guest today, the CEO and founder of Results Through Strategy and CEO of Engelman's Bakery. Um, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to our podcast, the Perfect Ingredient Podcast. Um, and if you have comments or feedback, please send us an email at perfectpod, uh, spelled just as it sounds, P-E-R-F-E-C-T-P-O-D, at perfect.tech. And uh, we will uh, we'll get back to you if you uh, send us a polite comment. If you send us a nasty comment, well, we might think twice about that. As always, I want to thank the team at ThatCast and Michael Wolf at ICR uh, for helping us produce this podcast. And again, uh, to my colleague and good friend, Anton Nicholas, I really, I always enjoy spending this time with you and any guests that we have on. So thank you very much, Anton. Pleasure to be here and great to see you, Fred. Great to speak with you. Always insightful. Okay, guys. Cheers. Thank you, Fred. Bye.